Hello, this is Dylan Moore with irita.tv, and today is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021, and we have here again Dr. E. Michael Jones, author over at Culture Wars Magazine at culturewars.com, and author of many large, fascinating books, one of which that I have right here, uh, Baron Metal, a... Uh, History of Capitalism as the Conflict Between Labor and Usury, which is going to be serving as the basis of our conversation today. And uh, before we get into that, I wanted to uh, let everyone know how you can follow us. So if you go over to irita.tv, um, we're at the top of the site, it'll show all the social media, media that we're available on. We're still on the uh, the old uh, censorship-friendly uh, t- sites still, although we are starting to get censored. Uh, so if you want to follow us and get everything that we're releasing, uh, we're on a plethora of different uh, new tech sites, new tech social media. And whichever one that you're on, likely we're on it too. And so if you go to irita.tv, you'll find us there. So uh, first and foremost, uh, Dr. Jones, uh, thank you very much for coming back on the show today. You're welcome. And then also, of course, I, I shouldn't fail to mention we have Nima Majur, uh, co-host and uh, co-partner at irita.tv. And uh, we're going to be talking. And it's, it's December 8th, by the way. Isn't that what I said? Oh, I, I, I must have missed it. <laughs> okay, you, you made me think that I got the wrong day. Okay, so um, Dr. Jones, you... Uh, mentioned something in our last call which was great everybody uh, we had a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people asking to uh to to come back is that you mentioned this one little clip that i i I jumped onto that economics is basically pseudo physics and that sounded just too darn interesting to not have a a a follow-up conversation about that and so um i've i've been reading that the chapters in your book that you suggested that i read and to, to get an idea about it. And it was quite eye-opening. I, I would recommend anybody to, to read this book. And I've got an idea where to start based on what I what I've read in your book. But obviously, I think it's better to, to come from you. And if we start with this very bizarre-sounding statement to someone who's not expecting it, that economics is pseudo-physics, where's the best place to begin to start talking about this? The best place is to start with uh, uh, Newton uh, and uh, the kind of uh, cosmic revolution or the revolution in terms of viewing the cosmos that he brought about with his uh, Principia, uh, Principia Mathematica. So uh, we're talking about the uh, uh, the middle of the uh, middle toward the end of the 17th century in England, revolutionary period. Uh, 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 Newton was at Cambridge uh, during the the, uh, revolution, uh, was a Whig supporter of the Whig party uh, and remained faithful to that political allegiance for his entire life. Uh, Within a a century, uh, the whole definition of economics had changed. Uh, So when Newton is at the university, economics was part of uh, philosophy and it was in particular part of moral philosophy. And that's the way it stayed for another century, all the way up to the time of Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adam Adam Smith was hired at the University of Edinburgh to teach moral philosophy, and uh, economics was part of what you taught there uh, for obvious reasons. Okay, the obvious reason being that when you come down to the fundamental, the basic atom of economics, it is basically two people coming together one with a person with something to sell and the other person with money wanting to buy something. That relationship is the heart of economics. And because it is a relationship in which both men are seeking to achieve the good, it's part of uh, moral philosophy. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a moral, it's a moral a framework that we're talking about here. Because of that fact, there will always be uh, a tendency to exploit the situation on the part of the stronger person. Uh, it's not as easy to see in the market where it's just goods. Uh, so if the you're going through the marketplace and the, the price of potatoes is too high at this stall, you just pass on by and go to the next stall and hope they have potatoes there. Uh, but uh, that situation could change dramatically if there's only one guy who sells potatoes or flour and you have to go to him 
and he has control of the market. And because he has control of the market, he's going to exploit that situation. And that was something, uh, when it comes to necessities, uh, the church always defined as sinful, exploiting. Uh, there was there was a just price. It was based on production. The just price included uh, room for profit, but you could not uh, extort people because of the power you had in the market. The, the situation where that's most apparent is when it comes to labor. Uh, because in a situation like this, the employer always has the upper hand over the employee. Even so, even in times of labor shortage. Uh, so, uh, the example uh, uh, would be the Black Plague. Uh, speaking of plagues, we're now in a COVID plague. Uh, but the, the plague. net result, of, the government, <laughs> the net result of that was that uh, wages went up because forty percent of the population of Europe died. So there was a labor shortage. So supply and demand went. That wages went up. This this became. Uh, this was always a problem, okay? And I, I begin the book with a discussion of uh, Florence, uh, beginning in the 15, 14th century and then into the 15th century where it became crucial and focused on the Medici family because, uh, who got uh, wealthy because of uh, cloth production. They had set, uh, Italy was the leader of the world in everything, at that point, it was the leader in terms of the creation of double entry bookkeeping. Uh, the Fugger family, the Germans would go to Venice to the school there, uh, the school, and they'd learn all these advanced techniques in terms of economics. It was the uh, most advanced place in the world when it came to art and painting, which I just cover in my most recent book, The uh, Dangers of Beauty, uh, music, uh, everything. Uh, all you have to do is think of Shakespeare's admiration for Italy. You have some sense of the way this uh, Italy was viewed at this time. The problem here is that the Medici family did not value labor. Now, this was in many ways a violation of the whole tradition that had arisen out of the Roman Empire under the tutelage of the Catholic Church. The Roman Empire was based on usury and slavery. And those two things go like go together like ham and eggs. Uh, you, the more usury you have in an economy, the more you drive independent contractors to the wall, and they lose everything because they go into debt, and they they're, they're, the the usurer takes their collateral, and they end up being slaves. And this is what happened uh, to the uh, Latifundia. The Latifundia were these huge agricultural estates that were run by slaves because the independent farmer had disappeared over the course of the uh, Roman Empire. When the empire fell, the Catholic Church took it over, and the Catholic Church had an understanding of the human being, the worth of the human being, that was much uh, 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 exponentially different than what existed in the Roman Empire. And the people who uh, understood this best were the Benedictines, who took over the the course of civilization, saved civilization during this period of time of the uh, barbarian invasions, and their motto was Aura et Labora, uh, work and pray. Now, Greece, uh, uh, to proceed, preceded Rome as one of the greatest achieve intellectual achievements in human history. And I wrote the book Logos Rising about the word Logos and how that developed at that time. But uh, the Greeks had no understanding of the value of labor. <clears throat> None. Aristotle said, if you had to work for a living, you could not be a citizen of Athens mm. because you had to attend meetings every day. It was like a university. Every day is full of meetings where you're trying to come up with decisions about policy. OK, if you had to work, you couldn't do it. So that meant that the work had to be done by slaves, which meant that it was inferior. It wasn't worthy of human dignity. And this sort of comes out in a kind of Plato's worldview where the real world is up there in the realm of forms, and this world is nothing but chaos. All of that changed with the incarnation, and what changed as well was the value of human labor. And so you had the Benedictine motto, which is ora et labora, work and pray. And these are the people who taught uh, my barbarian German ancestors how to work. And if you, uh, if you were fortunate as I was to, I rode down the Danube in a boat with a bunch of other Germans and you could see the one, uh, Benedictine monastery after another surrounded by 
uh, uh, orchards, vineyards, uh, the, the, the teaching the, uh, the uh, German uh, tribes that you didn't have to subsist by chasing pigs through the forest and eating gamey wild boar. You could switch to agriculture and so on and so forth. That uh, heritage grew for a thousand years. And, I, and I've, I've said before that the difference between Tanzania, uh, between the Diocese of Mbinga and the Diocese of Würzburg is a thousand years of learning how to work. That's the difference between Africa and Germany. And Germany has a very skilled workforce because they understood the value of labor, which they got from the Benedictines. So to get back to the Medici, the Medici did not know this. Italy did not, was not noted, even though it was a, a deeply Catholic culture, it didn't value labor. And Florence was a classic example of where the working class, uh, where you found out the limits, the limits of what you can do and what the limit is, the ultimate limit. And we've got this in Catholic social teaching of wages is the family wage. If you put, simply turn wages into a commodity, human labor into a commodity, there will be a race to the bottom because the, the, the employee is always weaker than the employer and the employer will always pay, play one worker off against another and you'll be desperate and you'll end up working for less than you need to survive. That's a starvation wage. But before you get to that, there's a crucial pa uh, place a red line you cannot cross, and that is the family wage, which is the basis of uh, the economy, the Christian economy. And why do I say the family wage? Because of what happened in Florence during this period of time. The wages were so low that the people stopped having children. And when they stopped having children in one generation, you don't have a workforce. And if you don't have a workforce, that's the end of your economy. And so what happened over this period of time is that they tried all sorts of artificial measures to prop this up. The, the workers in Florence were not allowed to uh, strike. They were not allowed to organize. They were not allowed to leave and go to another city state and share their skills. And so the whole thing just died on the vine. And it, I don't know what the causality here was, uh, but the Medici then went from being uh, manufacturers of cloth to being bankers. And so they went from labor to usury. And once you go to, to usury, it's the end. You're in the death spiral for, for your, for your economy. At this point, um, Florence became what it is today, which is a museum, beautiful museum with lots of beautiful art, but it's not a manufacturing powerhouse. Okay. Certainly not that. Uh, because they did not pay the family wage. And after a while, there were no children. Also, so you end up in the death spiral here in Florence. And what do you see? What is the characteristic of a culture that's about to die? Sodomy and usury. That's what turned out to be in Florence. Uh, that's what it is in our culture right now. It's obvious that we are in a death spiral here. The American empire is in a death spiral because this has replaced labor, sodomy, and usury. I don't know why they're connected. Dante saw the connection. Uh, he put sodomites and usurers. Dante was also from Florence. Put sodomites and usurers in the ninth circle of hell uh, because the usurer takes what is sterile, namely money, and tries to make it fertile through usury or interest. And the, uh, the sodomite takes what is fertile, namely sex, and renders it sterile by homosexual activity. So you had this point. They had their great moment uh, uh, of possibility of reform when Savonarola showed up. There was repentance across the board. Uh, Botticelli, uh, who was the uh, basically the, uh, uh, the, the artist who was the propagandist for Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici uh, for his regime, uh, through uh, what were probably pornographic uh, pictures onto the bonfire of the vanities. Uh, I cover this in the art book, uh, but eventually the sodomites, the usurers, and the Pope turned against Savonarola. He was murdered, and that was the end of that possibility of reform. The next uh, reform is known 
as the Reformation, which was not a reform at all. So I'm saying this is the, 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 the kind of background that we're saying. The turning point at this point came after Protestantism had established itself in Europe as a result of the Reformation. England was a bastion of Protestant thought. Uh, there was revolution there. And eventually, Newton came up with a new form of the universe, a new description of the universe, which would eventually supplant the old uh, classical understanding of the universe. Uh, and the crucial uh, point here was his basic resurrection of pagan philosophy uh, under the guise of science. So what we're talking about here is the philosophy of Empedocles, who said that all uh, motion in the universe was either love or strife. And you put love and strife together, uh, attraction and repulsion together, and you get circular motion. And at that point, the universe becomes a machine. And this is precisely what Newton did. He, Instead of uh, uh, love and strife, uh, he called it uh, inertia and gravity. Uh, gravity is love. Inertia is strife. You put those two things together, you get circular motion. That becomes a machine. That basically bans providence, which is God's intervention into the universe, bans it, removes it. It's not necessary because the universe functions all by itself now. It goes around and around in circles all by itself. We don't need that hypothesis anymore. Uh, and that set up... Uh, the, the basically the, the rise of England uh, as a as a world power. Now I'm saying that Newton didn't get the idea. There there are two things. There's the inverse square law. Okay, which is yeah, that's true. Uh, he, I don't think he came up with it. I think uh, uh, someone else did. Uh, but uh, and I cover that in the book. But uh, uh, it's true. I don't. I, there's no disputing that, but it becomes cover for basically the reimportation of pagan cosmology into the universe. And pagan cosmology means the banning of providence, which suddenly now there's no God up there anymore. And the man who completed this cycle uh, was Adam Smith. Adam Smith was hired as a professor of moral philosophy. So when he started off, it was still economics was still within the realm of moral philosophy. But then he wrote uh, his uh, Wealth of Nations, and that was a pure Newtonian book. And so basically what he took was, okay, it's not uh, gravity in inertia, it's competition and self-interest. But it's the same system. And again, once again, you have a system where the whole point of it is you don't need to intervene. So just as God can't intervene in the Newtonian universe, now uh, the moral agent, does not intervene in the uh, Adam Smith's economic world. And that, I think, that's why I'm saying that uh, at this point, beginning with Smith and then following the 19th century, physics, uh, economics became bad physics. Can you talk about the relationship? Because I, th This was totally fascinating to me when, when I read the chapters of the book. So you talked about Empedocles and how th these ideas originally came from Empedocles. Well, you also talked about how Newton came across these ideas, or likely came across these ideas from Empedocles, which is Newton was a serious, serious alchemist. Right. The last alchemist, yes. That's absolutely right. And, and, absolutely and right. I, I didn't realize how serious it was until you started laying out, like, you know, how much mercury was found in his body and how many alchemy books were found in, in on his shelf and, and the, the connections he was able to make from... from being in the, the alchemy club. And the question I have is, why was alchemy so fundamental to Newton creating his cosmology? I don't think, I think, uh, well, first of all, because of Empedocles. I'm saying because this was his vehicle where he got, alchemy was his access to pagan thought. Mm -hmm. So the same, the same thing happened in Florence. Basically, uh, Cosimo de' Medici had the Hermetic text translated into Latin. Ficino did that for him. And this was the reintroduction of pagan thought into Christian uh, uh, Italy after a thousand years, over a thousand years of Christianity. So that's, it became the, uh, 
vehicle for Empedocles. I think that's one reason why it was important. But I think it also shows uh, what he was interested in. Mm-hmm. This, this isn't a man who was, had uh, a disinterested appreciation of the truth. He was in it for financial gain. So when it when the Whigs created their bank, he was the guy who did the coinage. He was the guy who basically reissued, reissued the coins. He was a user himself at uh, at the university. He would lend out money to his fellow students. He was a, a very unpleasant guy, like the classic academic schemer, uh, who's always trying to take credit, stealing other people's ideas, trying to take credit, trying to build up his resume, trying to. He was very successful. But I think that uh, alchemy, alchemy was central to what he was doing. He spent more time on alchemy than he did on mathematics. Uh, now, why was that? Well, I think because he was wanted gold, because that's what alchemy is about. It's basically transmuting lead into gold. And uh, just to put the whole English Enlightenment into perspective, uh, you mentioned the fact he, he was having experiments. Mercury is a crucial element in this regard because it's it's a transition between like liquid and solid and it had all sorts of occult properties but he and Locke the the, the pillars of the English enlightenment uh, were engaging in alchemical experiments in his in his uh, uh, in his apartment which led to I think to lead poisoning and I think he went slightly crazy at a certain point. He did go slightly crazy. And people, because you, he had 40 times the lead in his uh, body. You mean mercury? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, mercury. 40 yeah. times the mercury in his body of the average citizen of the 20th century. So that's a lot of mercury. And the, the whole point of uh, the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland is he used mercury to create hats. That's why they were all crazy, because they were all suffering from mercury poisoning. That's the reason I think that uh, alchemy was important because he was he was more interested in political power and financial uh, gain than he was in the truth. So and then I didn't realize what alchemy was until I read read your book. And I mean, I I knew it was about how to transmute lead into gold. But this idea that the alchemists believed that there was only one metal, which was gold and all other metals were just like this abortive attempt by the earth to make gold and that if and because mercury make if you mix mercury with different metals it makes them shinier and in a lot of cases it makes them gold colored that the mercury was the this you know the spirit that, that got imbued into the into the the metal that wants to be gold anyway and allowed it to convert itself into gold and you mentioned in the book as well that this was the this was the exoteric description of of alchemy right where this is what they wrote down this isn't what they told to each other and what what they likely told to each other was this is literally just about deception how do we trick people into thinking that we made gold is that do i have that right yeah the the alchemist the actual alchemist in the middle ages had all kinds of tricks uh to dupe uh gullible princes into giving him precious metals so how much precious metal do you have? How much gold do you have? Well, um, uh, you give me that and I'll double it. So how, how do I know you're going to do this? Well, he'd have like a, a pot with a false bottom and there would be a, a thin layer of something or other on top of it. And he'd heat this pot and then suddenly that thin layer would disappear, would evaporate and there would be gold. Well, it's the gold you put there. He didn't turn it into gold. So there's all kinds of uh, trickery going on here. Now, the, 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 cru- the crucial fact here is that uh, it's George Soros who said, he said, finance is alchemy. Mm-hmm. He, said, he said that in the 20th century. Uh, and there's an element uh, to, uh, that's true. That's true. And what happened over this period of time is that the people had to get away from this kind of attachment to material objects. This is the re- a refinement that took place in philosophy, basically when the first philosopher of Thales said, everything is water. And then Anaxagoras said, no, it's air. And then Heraclitus says fire. And at a certain point, they had to transcend all of this and realize that it's logos, which is not a material thing. So the sen- something similar had to happen with metal. I- I'm sorry, with money. In the beginning... Uh, money was metal. The beginning of uh, the beginning of money is, is basically 
uh, everyone valued gold. Everyone knew that gold was valuable. Everyone desired gold. Okay. So you would take this as a, a way of getting away from barter because economic exchange began with barter, but there are problems. Like you have a cow and he has a shoe, shoes. And how many shoes do you take to make up a cow? Well, that's, that's part. So you chop the cow up into pound of meat and that, but that's problematic. So let's have a, a medium of exchange. Let's have it gold. Okay. That's good. But you're telling me that's an ounce of gold. How do I know you're not lying to me? How do I know you didn't spray paint a piece of lead? Okay. And this is where we have the coin. So the coin is basically, you have the sovereign's image stamped on, let's say, an ounce of gold. The sovereign guarantees that this is what it says it is, an ounce of gold of a certain type of uh, refinement. That is the beginning of the coin. That is the beginning of money. Now, over this period of time, what you had a, an economy that became so productive that gold was holding it back. And that is the other side of the whole barren metal book is this whole story of gold is gold money. There are still people today who think we should go back to the gold standard. You know, there's never enough gold to accommodate human productivity. There's never enough gold. There was at the time we're talking about there. I think the gold was basically a cube of like six feet by six feet by six feet. That was it. It was all came from basically uh, the Roman armies plundering all these places, assembling at one place. That's all there was. Well, that's not enough to accommodate human productivity. And so as a result, the wages were always being deflated and the economy was always being constricted. So at a certain point, you had to realize that alchemy is, in a sense, true because you can say that this is money if the sovereign puts his image on it. Mm -hmm. Because money is simply a medium of exchange. It is not wealth. All value, human labor is the source of all value. That was the fundamental understanding that was hidden in what the Benedictines were saying about their talking about labor. Everybody agrees on it. What do you mean by everybody? Karl Marx said that. And as soon as you say that, everybody says, oh, well, then it must be wrong. Well, John Locke said it and uh, Adam Smith said it. And they were certainly not Marxist. And Pope John Paul II also said it. They all agree because it's true. The source of value is human labor. And so the result is you don't need a piece of gold as the medium of exchange. What you have, you could have is basically anything. Let's take a piece of paper. As long as the sovereign is backing this up, as long as the sovereign says, guarantees that this is credit on future labor and that you will be paid off and that you can use this to pay off debts and taxes, it's money. It is money. And the first guy, the first man who realized this was John Law, a Scotsman who ended up being the finance minister in France, who was spectacularly successful. Uh, but with the problem with this is it's not uh, an unlimited free lunch here. You can only issue money uh, to the size of the economy. And the politicians, once they see this, this is great, we'll just, uh, and they issued too much money and it collapsed. And they, everybody lost faith in it, in it. And they went back, went back to gold. And it took centuries before they really perfected this. That, that was the, that was the realization that liberated the economies. That, that was what, that was what got this, got this started. And it was a, 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 a spiritualization of an understanding of labor and an understanding of money that that it could, in a sense, grow out of alchemy. It, it could, in a sense, you could mm -hmm. create. A, a, you, it's, it's not that you can create gold. You can't create gold, but you can create money. And the only reason you're interested in gold is because it's money. So you could create money. And the guy who, uh, literary, the literary figure who understood this was Goethe. The part two of uh, Faust uh, has a pa long passages about uh Fiat money, where he's trying to meditate on, on, uh, what John Law had done, 
uh, not too far in the past uh, from him. That's that's why that's why alchemy was important, because in a sense, it is money is what you would call performative speech. Performative speech is like what the minister does. He says, I now pronounce you man and wife. That's true. It happened because he said it. The, the ultimate author of performative speech is God. God says, let there be light. And there's light. Money is, is like that. It's the government saying, this is money. Now, it's not unlimited. It's not without limits, but the government can do this. And this is precisely what liberated the economies to this day. Okay. Great prosperity, but it, the, the flaw always is it's going to be usury. The thing that causes the collapse, it's what's causing the collapse right now. I've got 17 different questions going in my head at once. Um, while these are going okay. through my head, Nima, did you have anything that you wanted to throw in there or ask? Well, I mean, I think what you just said, Dr. Jones, um, sort of goes hand in hand with certain things that we've been talking about on this show in regards to gold in particular. Gold was never really necessarily a good medium to facilitate a prosperous economy it's only ever popped up historically as a medium of exchange in times of severe warfare and strife. In particular, we've uh, discussed um, the first time gold and silver coinage really became relevant was uh, the Axial Age, I believe, which was around 800 BC to 700 AD or so. And then the other time when gold was very important was uh, the, the, the um, age of the colonial empires, uh, uh, which was from sometime around 1400 AD until around, um, I believe, 1972 AD, which is when we went off the gold standard, because gold is so easy in comparison to credit arrangements and credit money. Gold is very easy to steal. And so that's what makes it so useful in times where society breaks down and in times of warfare. You can take right, right. Uh, in, in, in times in times of trouble, gold is a great store of value, and that's supposed to be one of the characteristics of money. It's a terrible medium of exchange. <laughs> I was I was in uh, in Iran, and uh, this there was a contest, an essay contest, and the lady won the contest, and the the prize was gold. They gave her uh, five gold coins, and so she she said, "I said, can I can I see the coins?" And she put them in my hand, and my fist immediately closed. I did not <laughs> want to let go of this gold. This is what happens. It's in the treasure of the Sierra Madre. If you want to watch that uh, uh, that movie, uh, it it is a terrible medium of exchange because it's so valuable i can't, can't hand it over yeah, yeah i was gonna say give that to me <laughs> give it to me give it to me you want you don't want to let you don't want to let it out of your hand it's too bad and when when trouble comes up and you have inflation which we're starting to kick in now because they're overprinting the money you know for political reasons you can get that gold you bury it in your backyard and it'll be there unless someone else comes with a metal detector and digs it up so it's You've got the two aspects of money at war with each other in gold. It's because it's a great store of value. It's a terrible medium of exchange. Well, and you can always take any coins, whatever sovereign they have stamped on them. You can melt it down and make your own gold out of it. That's what makes it so easy to. That's steal. right. And the other side of the coin, if you'll pardon my pun here, is that the sovereign can take all of the gold and melt it down and mix it with something else and debase the currency. So it's not secure. It is I don't know why these people think that some type of gold standard is is never going to be corrupted. Well, it's it's gold, corrupted all the time. From what we've uh, uh, from what I've read um the gold standard has always been very popular with bankers because it forces the government to reduce social spending and all these kinds of things and it creates more demand for bank loans. So that's most of the reason why in modern times bankers have proposed gold, uh, a favor to gold standard. Well, there's there's another reason on top of that, which is by uh, keeping things deflationary, um, de deflation 
benefits bankers in the sense that if I lend you out a hundred bucks and then the money gets more valuable and you got to pay me one hundred and twenty bucks back after the interest, you paid me more than one hundred and twenty bucks back well, because things yeah, deflated. Yeah, yeah, austerity. Yeah, yeah. class classic expression of this is. Murray wrote, wrote Bart's book on money, which is basically the Jewish take on money. Yeah, and he actually, actually says, he actually, this is a direct quote from this book. He says, uh, my ducats swell. My ducats swell during periods of deflation. Oh, yeah. That's now, right. this is, this is classic Jewish thinking. It, it, the ducat, he's obviously referring to Shylock, the, that whole air, that whole talk. But basically, what you're saying is, I've got the money, I've got the store of value, and you're going to be miserable. And that's great for me. Yeah, that's great for me. The more miserable you are, the better off I am. And that was precisely. I cover this in the environmental and the whole uh, populist movement in America at the end of the 19th century. So when the when the uh, when the during the Civil War, uh, they issue greenbacks because they need to. print money to fight the war and uh this the pro the economy prospers because the constraints the monetary constraints have been lifted and the guy uh the farmer's making two dollars a bushel uh for wheat 30 years later he's getting 50 cents a bushel he's being crushed by the gold standard by the deflation in the economy and that led to all sorts of protests the 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 interim solution some people tried to come up with was silver William Jennings Bryant did the great speech about not being crucified on a cross of gold. But it's only an interim. It's not going to solve the problem because the amount of silver is going to be finite just as the amount of gold is. Maybe there's more of it, but there's still finite. And you can't have some type of finite limit to human labor, to human productivity. You can't. Not going to work. Yeah, we completely agree here. That's that's definitely something that we've talked about. And, you know, another interesting thing about silver, it's uh, it's an industrial um, um Substrate. No, uh, God, what the word is escaping me. They need it in industry to make stuff. It gets used up. So in gold, but most people are buying gold to, like you said, bury it in your backyard. But with silver, people are buying silver because they need it to make stuff. So, you know, another reason why silver probably isn't the best money is that, okay, we created this thing for money, but there's actually industry gobbling it up because they're literally like, (laughs) the factory's literally eating it. What's that? Yeah, the, 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 what, what you do at this point is you bring the whole story full circle. Mm-hmm. Whole story, because we started off with moral philosophy, and you have to have an economy that is based on moral principles. And so it turns out that, oh, we don't need this, blah, blah, blah. You know, we got Newtonian physics, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out, oh, we're going to paper money. Well, then it turns out the main criterion for the successful use of paper money is moral restraint it's moral restraint on the part of the of the bank that the that the treasury is not going to over issue uh money and debase the currency for political reason precisely what is going on right now precisely what is going on right now well and i would even argue it's uh it's not even just debasing it's um what you spend it on is huge right if if we're gonna if we're gonna create a bunch of currency and then hire the unemployed masses to create something useful, we've increased the currency. We've 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 hired labor. We've we've utilized unused resources, and we've put something productive into the system. If we instead take that money and we give it to uh, vaccine makers <clears throat> and and uh, propaganda machines to help vaccines, and then uh, some's gonna go to Israel and some's gonna go over here. That's all money created for nothing. Uh, right, uh, create uh, a horror show. Yeah, right, right. It's I've 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 said before. It's like sex. Okay, uh, you can uh, sex is a gift. Uh, munus, it's referred to munus munera. It's uh, remunerative. It has relationship to money in that Latin word. You can uh, engage in sterile sex and go to bars and have sex with all uh, women or men or something like that. And at the end, you'll have nothing to show for it. You can do the same thing with money. You can take money and basically go to spend it in bars and getting drunk and blah, 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 blah. And you'll have nothing to show for it. Or you can invest it. And what do I mean by invest? I mean by putting it to productive use. Yes. So it's obviously with sex, okay? If you put sex to productive use within marriage, you will end up with children. 
And if you end up with children, you are creating a little community. And if you raise them right, and if they are, you know, they become moral people too, they will take care of you in your old age. You will build something. The same thing with money. You can get money. I, I, I got, uh, uh, someone invested in me when I started the magazine, gave me uh, a certain amount of money. I could have spent that money. I could have bought, uh, an expensive car with that money. And that would have been in the junkyard by now because right. it's been 40 years. Okay. This magazine is still supporting us after 40 years because I invested it in labor, my labor, the labor of my mind. And so as a result, it kept returning uh, the investment. This is the type of thing where this is the way we have to think about money. It's something you use. It is better to love God and make use of money than it is to love money and make use of God. That's what St. Augustine said. So there's always this tendency to I don't I hate to hate this word fetishize to turn money into something that has some type of independent existence. It's an instrument and it has the only way you will understand to use this inst instrument properly is by using the moral law, by applying the moral law to it and, and turning it into a productive investment. Well, and then I'd like to, to talk about that moral law. So if we go back to Newton, and again, the, there was just a ton of details in your book that, that I had no idea about Newton, is when we, we look at the sources of what, where he came up with, like you said, we've, we've got the attractive force, love or gravity, and then we got the strife force, which is uh, inertia, that a very key component was removed from the cosmos when he did this, and this was telos. Telos, right. Can you, can you talk about what that was and why it was, why it was so bad? that got removed. Tell us it means an end or a goal. <laughs> there is no action without a goal. That's true. Okay. Anytime an animal does something, he has some goal in mind. Generally, it's reducible to uh, fear. Okay. You don't want to be eaten. Uh, food, you want to eat something and reproduction. Everything has a goal. Therefore, the universe has a goal. Everything in the universe has a goal. Uh, Aristotle said that uh, the elements had a, a natural tendency, like earth and water go down, fire and air go up. Well, we don't we don't believe that anymore. That we don't believe that universe. But there still is the sense of purpose to all action. If it's not, if there's no purpose, why are you acting? Well, that's precisely what Newton eliminated with his machine. He eliminated the idea of natural motion, that our actions have a natural tendency toward the good, for example, and everything became violent motion. That's what the, uh, the scholastic called it. In other words, violent motion means if I take a rock and I throw it up in the air, I'm, I'm pushing that rock in the absolute opposite direction of what its natural tendency is, and the rock uh, realizes that and it comes down uh, after that. All of that idea has been eliminated uh, from the universe. Now, that has economic consequences, and I think it grew out of the situation in England, which is basically uh, you had a natural or uh, uh, an England that was based on nature, the nature of man. We could call that Catholic England. Then there was the Reformation. The Reformation was violent motion. Uh, Newton's Principia is in many ways a justification of violent motion. It is saying that all motion is violent motion. If all motion is violent motion, then there's no natural motion. If there's no natural motion, then the person on the throne is there for one reason and one reason alone, and that is violence or force. Force becomes the ruler of the universe at this point, and that is I think the logic of the Reformation, and it's the logic of the Glorious Revolution. So this is, Newton obviously went through the Glorious Revolution. He was there in England at this time. And so you had the natural hereditary monarch. Well, it turns out he's a Catholic. <coughs> Can't have that. Because we're all living in stolen Catholic property. So 
I know, we'll put someone on the throne. We'll get this Dutchman, King Billy the Dutchman, and we'll put him on the throne. And that will be violent motion, but that's not wrong. It's all motion is violent uh, motion. So what's the difference, right? If everything's violent motion, then why not put a usurper on the throne? And if everything is violent motion, then why not grind the worker? This is, you see what yes. the corruption that this brought in. And, and once you have violent motion, then where does, if everything is violent motion, how is providence part of human history? Right. Providence is eliminated because you've got a machine that is a source of all motion and all motion is violent motion. And you, you mentioned as well that this thinking, because, because like you said, you, you, you take this out, you, you take, it basically takes God out of the, the equation, which takes morals out of the equation. And like you said, if, if all motion is violent motion, well, then it's, it's perfectly normal for uh, the factory owner to just pay the worker subsistence, subsistence wages. And then that actually leads to Darwin, right? Where it said that's actually good because that, 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 um, helps with competition. And competition right. being one of one of you know the the love or the strife uh, uh, that um, <laughs> propels everything forward. Can, can you t- talk a little bit of of who else that well, we'll say Newton's ideas infected in terms of, of great thinkers? And um, well, I mean, like, like I just mentioned with with Darwin, well, Darwin, yeah, Darwin's a classic example. Except that now everything is strife. Everything is strife, and strife is the mother of all good things. And so you have this natural selection and that is in, in many ways the ideology that rules us to this day. And the, the most recent manifestation of it was the uh, the four atheists of about 10 years ago uh, when they came on the scene. And who are they? Every, uh, well, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Dawkins, Steve, uh, what's his name? Stephen Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett, and who am I missing here? Anyway, there are four of them. Sam four Harris. Of them. Yeah, that's right. Sam Harris. He's the other one. Okay. And they were all Darwinists. And, and the whole point is they, they are coming up with this metaphysical Darwinism, metaphysical biology, which is preposterous. And it's so pre, and the really funny thing is they don't understand how preposterous their own theories are. So uh, Dawkins, the, the only uh, philosopher among these guys was Dennett, and he came up with what's got to be one of the stupidest statements in the history of philosophy, where he said, the universe created itself out of nothing or something very small. <laughs> what? what are you talking about? First of all, can the universe create itself out of nothing? Well, that means that the universe has to exist before it existed. Explain that to me, will you? Right. And then secondly, out of some or how something very small. Well, wait a minute. If it's something, then something exists. Then there's nothing. There's not, there's not nothing. And they don't understand fundamental, fundamental metaphysical principles that were articulated hundreds of years before Christ. Parmenides, for example, said, uh, uh, that which is cannot come from that which is not, which is the ultimate refutation of Darwinism, which says that which is comes from that which is not. Well, so Dawkins is trying to think, now, uh, let me try to explain this. How does this happen? How does this happen? Let's take an eye. Let's take an eye. Darwin was really puzzled by the eye. It's really complicated. So it came from, this is, this is Hitchens now. There are some organisms that had light sensitive cells. Oh, well, that's just light sensitive cells. You add evolution, you shake it up and you get the eye. Well, wait a minute. These light sensitive cells either can see, in which case they are already an eye, in which case this is a tautology, or they cannot see, in which case they will never become an eye because that which is cannot come from that which is not. And they are too stupid to understand their own argument, the futility of their own argument. That's Darwin. Thanks to Darwin. Uh, any they, any other critic said the same thing. About, Dawkins said the same thing about the wing. The wing, okay. The wing is that which enables flight. So Dawkins, the genius, says, "Well, forty-nine percent of a wing is better than nothing, right?" Well, wait a minute. 
We're talking about how the wing came into existence. If it's 49% of a wing, it's a wing. Which means you're already begging the question here. You've Where'd the wing come from? Yeah. Where did it come from? Where did you, where was this thing that did not, how did you get from the point where it could not fly to where it could fly? You can't get there by little steps. It's one or the other. Okay. It's that, that they, they couldn't figure this out. Can you turtles all the way down? (laughs) I, I, uh, Gave that argument to an Indian. I asked him what the, uh, had an internet conversation with an Indian. I said, well, what's the turtle standing on? He couldn't answer the question. And because he couldn't answer the question, he converted to Catholicism. So don't ever say people don't, uh, convert because of philosophical arguments. Wow. Yeah. I, I would definitely not say it, especially after hearing that. No. Can you talk a little bit about, so, um, I want to talk about how alchemy kind of alchemy and uh, um, Cartesian philosophy led to Newton coming up with this idea of of they're contradictory, like like you mentioned in the book. But th- this idea of the attractive force and the uh, the uh, the strife force. However, you mention that there's never any explanation as to how, why, what gravity is and how, why, what inertia is. It's just there. Newton, when asked about it, he goes, hey, man, I don't know. And the, the, the fact that it's just there isn't, isn't me- metaphysically a good explanation. And because we have this bad metaphysical explanation that won't go anywhere, it, like, like we've talked about, it leads into all these other areas. And I, and I just wanted to make it clear for the listener why gravity and inertia – not that the not that we can't make observations about these things, but why gravity and inertia don't have a philosophical standing? No, they were they were imported. This uh, Leibniz understood this immediately. Leibniz and Huygens uh, both under both said that Newton was using occult. These are occult forces. In other words, you've got uh, uh, angels. Here we're talking about angels, basically. You're talking about some type of being that pushes things and do, does things like that, except you're giving them all the scientific uh, uh, names to something that were basically a cult, okay? A cult goes back to alchemy. So you had the, the tradition of English thought, of philosophy in England was uh, John Dee. <laughs> that was magic. Mm-hmm. John Dee was the uh, guy who worked for the CIA. He worked for Walsingham. Uh, trying to ferret out spies for Queen Elizabeth. And he was, he talked with angels. He actually uh, and his manuscript. Uh, John Maynard Keynes found this manuscript. It just kind of blew holes in the English uh, f- philosophical tradition, but that was the main tradition. And so it was passed on from John Dee to Robert Flood. And then Flood got into a debate with uh, uh, Father Mersenne, who was the uh, promoter of Descartes, and he just obliterated him, just wiped, just destroyed him. And at that point, the Cartesian uh, philosophy became the dominant philosophy in Europe, and England became a backwater of basically mad magicians. That's what they were. And so, what you had was Newton coming along out of the alchemical tradition because of the Royal Society. That's what it was, and taking Descartes and kind of combining them and sanitizing them with scientific mathematical explanations and disguising their occult properties. Mm-hmm. And that's by, by what I'm saying, and the, by occult properties, I'm saying agents who act on their own, which we would have to call angels. And that's what gravity is. It's love. It's a force in the universe. Now, you could say uh, uh, Dante believed in gravity, believed that gravity was love, and he believed that God was love. Like I got that from St. John, right? So that is a, a way of introducing agency into the universe, but that's not Newton's way. Newton's not interested in that. He wants a machine. He wants a machine based on violent motion because that's the system that the Whigs want to put in place. And so that was the problem here. That was the problem. And, 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 uh, 
Newton uh, pressed on the issue when when uh, Leibniz pressed him on the issue. He couldn't explain it. Like, is gravity a part of matter? Is it a characteristic of matter? Well, he didn't want to say that uh, because obviously he's working. It's an angel. That's what he's talking about. So it's not a property of matter, but it seems to be a property of matter. And it seems that the inverse square law seems to be relating to masses. But then again, you've got another problem here, and that's action at a distance, which he also could not explain. So obviously the moon exerts some type of force on the earth. It's called the tide. So all you have to do is watch the tides. Tide comes in, tide goes out. It's all based on the moon. Well, how does the moon exert that? According to, this is the other, uh, uh, it's, he was, he he basically was an atomist. uh, And so you have atoms and the void. That's what Democritus said. This is the other ancient philosophy that's being smuggled into Christian thought now. So, okay, it's atoms and the void. So there's one atom is the moon and the other atom is the earth. And there's a void between them. Well, the void is another word for nothing. Is there nothing between the earth and the moon? If there's nothing between them, they're touching. Well, they're not touching. So therefore there must be something. Well, what is it? He couldn't explain it. Class, how do you have action at a distance? He couldn't explain it because of the philosophical presuppositions that he brought, brought to the system. So they ignored it. Just ignored it. How do you, how does the moon exert force? on the oceans in on earth how does it do it he couldn't have any explanation for that and that lack of explanation as we've been talking about led to multiple different fields of study economics you know being the one that, that, that we're talking about here and and this is you know i i suspected something like this but again re, uh, reading the book and having the conversation has has opened my eyes a lot is that i knew the invisible hand that adam smith <laughs> described uh, was a basically a religious argument. I'm not saying it was a good one, but it was a religious argument where he, he's attempting to ascribe some sort of providence to the market. That that the fact that any transaction that happens is good because that that's the, the invisible hand is there guiding and making sure that everything yeah. is going is is going okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was just a a reflection. Of of what Newton came up with, which is just these these occult unexplainable forces. So due to right, occult so, unexplainable well, forces, we need to organize our society like this, and you don't get paid anything, <laughs> right? What what what's the invisible hand attached to? Nothing. Why right? did he say? What? Well, nothing. Well, then right. how's it supposed to have any power? The only plausible explanation would be that it's the hand of God. Oh, well, at that point, I can understand how the hand of God regulates human history. I can understand. Well, why did you cut his hand off? Why did you cut God's hand off? Well, because you want, it turns out the rich people are God. Because that passage about the invisible hand is talking about wealthy people. It was, it was uh, basically Newton telling the rich that they are God. You are like God. Because the way you spend your money enriches everyone it's like grace you know you squander your money everyone benefits and that's a substitution for religion providence the real god it was all it's a truncation a hand cut off it's a hand it got cut off the only thing in the bible is like this is when the hand of god writes mene mene tekel uparston on the walls uh when uh, what is it xerxes is having his banquet but that hand is clearly attached to God. Here you have a hand that's disconnected from God, and we're supposed to give it God uh, a respect that as if it's the new God. And so let's get into that. So here we are today. It's 2021. All this stuff is several hundred years old now. Um, Newton, I mean, the, Newton's cosmology has obviously been challenged. I mean, specifically once the, the, the relativistic and, and quantum worlds get discovered and um, – I don't know if discover is the right word, but they get uh, they get uh, projected onto the the fabric of the universe in, in order to interpret them. But I feel like the economics from Adam Smith hasn't changed that much since he he brought them into into existence, and we're still trying to navigate 
our society based on this this compass that kind of doesn't necessarily point north, if you know what I mean. Well, the the fundamental problem here is that you've banished uh, morality from economics. You've made morality yep. subjective and you made economics, uh, as I said, like physics, which means it's completely objective, a completely objective reality. And we have to subject ourselves to these quasi objective laws. No, they're not. They're not. They're all made by men, uh, by some men with certain goals in mind. And all of these decisions have uh, some good in mind. It's just that what you when you start promoting usury, which is what our culture does, uh, you uh, make most people's lives miserable. And that's precisely what happened over this period. It also corresponds to the rise of Jewish control of our culture because tr- Jews were traditional users. And so over this period of time, the, the, the turning point, I think, was 1973 when wages stopped going up. At that point, the credit cards comes into existence to uh, uh, give you the illusion that you have more money than you actually have or earning from your wages. And so there's a burst of, of uh, consumer activity. Everyone thinks they have a lot of money. And then suddenly the, the debt burden, the interest burden starts to bear down on the economy. Uh, this was accelerated by the Fed's policy when Paul Volcker became head of the Fed. He wanted to stop inflation. And so he raised interest rates to 20 percent. Uh, basically meaning that you could uh, in, put your money in a treasury bill and you could get 20% interest with no risk whatsoever. This killed investment. St. Uh, Bernardino of Siena said, usury kills charity and it kills investment, kills business. Because why should you risk your money? Yeah, you, you got free 20% have, right there. No, you only have a right to a return if you share risk. This is this is the essence of Christian Christian investment. If you share risk, it's like the in the Bible, the story of the the servants. You know, they they're given five talents, and he went out and invested it and made a hundred talents. That's classic risk. Okay, if you risk your if you risk it in some type of productive venture, there should be no limit to the amount that you can earn, which is pretty much true. The other hand, we have the guy with one talent, and what does he do? He buries it. And the guy says, you should have put it in the bank. This is not a, an, an endorsement of banking. It's an endorsement of risk-taking. And salvation and money are related in this regard, and the link is labor. Is labor. You you have to invest, take a risk. You start a business and you use that labor to to create surplus value, and surplus value is the reward for for risk. All of these things have been destroyed by usury. As I said, if you're going to make twenty percent with no risk, why would you ever risk your money in some type of venture? You wouldn't do it. You don't do it. And that's precisely what happens. So what at this point, with after the Volcker Fed, they had to strike down usury laws all across because the government was the biggest user around. And at that point, people got used to uh, quick money, making a quick buck. They got away from the idea that labor is the source of all value. And you had this leverage buyouts in the 80s. You had these orgies of, you know, uh, credit defaults for all this type of stuff, which is one form of usury after another, which led to the collapse of 2008, always going to lead to collapse. But what you have is a fundamental shift in mentality away from the fact that if you want to make, if you want to earn, make money, you need, if you want to uh, create wealth, let's put it that way, you need to use money to promote labor. That's what you got to do. And um, this um, policy of Volcker, ironically, the excuse was to stop inflation, and it didn't do that at all. It only exacerbated inflation, as we talked about on this show. The higher the the risk-free interest rate is, the higher the net subsidy to people who already have money in the economy, and they're not doing anything in return for it. So it actually led to inflation rising more and more. The only... uh, 
the 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 only uh, tool to end the inflation at that time was to deregulate the price of natural gas, and that was when prices started coming down. Yeah, Not the interest rates. Yeah, yeah, that that was the time of the energy crisis. They de- they dis- uh, Nixon disconnected the dollar from gold. At that point, it started to float, and the o- OPEC, the people decided, well, we're going to, we're going to start charging whatever the market will bear. And that exactly. that caused a huge spike in in uh, cost uh, to everyone and and so on, but the the fundamental, I mean the fundamental problem here is that uh, you all of that achievement. Let's say somebody like Henry Ford, the great manufacturing base that America was, the people who understood that labor is the source of value, whatever shortcomings they had, it was all got replaced by basically Jewish get rich quick schemes and we have suffered and that led to enormous concentration of wealth into the hands of people like Sheldon Adelson and Paul Singer and Bernard Marcus. And those people ended up controlling the Republican party. And that's, that's the situation where we're ruled by oligarchs, we're ruled by money and labor doesn't mean anything. And uh, representative democracy doesn't mean anything anymore either. That's the tragedy of the situation. Listen, I guys, I've enjoyed our talk. I gotta, I gotta get off. Great discussion. Thank you for having me on. Uh, well, and- it's it's uh, always been a pleasure, Doctor Jones. Um, if gotta run, uh, well, thank you so much. And um, I, I usually ask if there's any last comment that you have, but it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like yes, you gotta run right. The last, <laughs> yeah, the last comment is go to Fidelity. Uh, press.org and buy a copy of Baron Metal. Hold that book up there. And you will get the education in economics that you didn't get in college. Okay. I'm still the professor here. I'm the professor, the return of the repressed here. The, I stuck this tweed jacket. I'm still the professor. And this will be what you never learned because it's never been written because it's based on the writing of Heinrich Pesch and nobody knows, knows who Heinrich Pesch is. This is Catholic economics. This is real economics. Anyway, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, this has been Irita TV with Dylan Moore and Nima Majur and our guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones. Thank you again, and thank you for watching. 